Hello and welcome everyone to the Don't Shop on Tuesday podcast. I'm your host, Jacob, and we're joined with a special guest, Jack Sweeney of the LA Bucket Brigade, here to talk to us about liquid natural gas, methane, and overall fighting the good fight on pollution in vulnerable communities. So Jack, why don't you start a little bit by describing what LA Bucket Brigade is and you know the, the founding of it and what, what the sort of project and mission is. Yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for that intro. So the Bucket Brigade is a grassroots community organization. We're a 501c3 nonprofit, you know, to use the technical term. But our MO, kind of the way we operate is in partnership with what we call fence line communities. So those neighborhoods or towns that are right up next to a plant or, you know, just down the road or just downwind. And how we plug into those fights is we support these community organizations on their terms. So that would mean, let's say this particular neighborhood really wants to take a legal route. They want to go ahead and sue Shell. Then we'll connect them with, you know, legal help, lawyers, and, uh, you know, we'll proceed through the courts. If, if, if they want to talk to media, we'll connect them with media training. We'll spread their message to our media networks, host press conferences and live streams. Or, you know, if they just need a financial sponsor or a fiscal sponsor, excuse me, will will you know handle the the paperwork and everything, and basically just supporting those people already doing the work and amplifying them rather than kind of from a from a top down perspective going this is how you do this is how you fight this fight this is how you solve this problem because you know nine hundred ninety nine times out of a thousand people tend to know exactly what they need and how to best achieve it. They know better themselves than than anyone else. Yeah, absolutely. I love the focus on, you know, local community and empowering people. One of the things as I was looking, you know, and reading a little bit about the LA Bucket Brigade was the sort of amazing empowering solution that you had around your initial bucket, you know, the EPA approved bucket for air sampling and sort of enabling people to, you know, get that power and and the ability to sort of monitor themselves. I, I was thinking a lot about it, especially as we have the Ohio train derailment. And a lot of people are having to rely on whether or not the EPA or various testing by people hired by Norfolk Southern, um, you know, for whether or not their water and, you know, the, the, re- the natural resources are pure. And I found it very inspiring, the, the bucket that you that you guys designed and how that sort of changes that power dynamic. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you brought this up in the context of the the train derailment in Ohio because the inspiration behind bringing the bucket to Louisiana because we didn't invent the bucket. I don't. I, I would love to tell you who invented the bucket. I believe Erin Brock Brockovich popularized the bucket for the first time in her campaigns that they have you know a whole movie about. But you know to to get to the point, the the event that really birthed the bucket bucket brigade and gave us that name was was a series of disasters kind of at the same scale as well not quite the same scale but as mm. as you know the as, as, around, uh, yeah yeah just as you know kind of impactful and shocking there's a community called diamond in a town called norco which is a town whose name comes from new orleans refining company just to give you an idea they were sandwiched between a shell refinery and a shell chemical plant. And there were two major incidents, one that that 
I remember best. Well, I don't personally remember this happened in the 70s, but it's kind of what inspired their efforts was a situation where Shell had emitted a large quantity of, I think it was benzene, a flam- some kind of flammable emission that stuck low to the ground. So you couldn't necessarily smell it or see it. It was, it was kind of undetectable. And a teenager was getting ready to mow the lawn for his elderly neighbor. Very quintessential little neighborhood scene. He'd probably done it a million and one times before. But this time when he pulled the, the cord to start the lawnmower, it, it sparked an explosion that, that killed him and, and his elderly oh, neighbor, you know, in, in an explosion. So yeah. a, a pretty horrifying scene and horrifying way to go. And uh, what really convinced the rest of the neighborhood that it was time to fight Shell was when they found out that the boy's mother had been offered a few hundred dollars by Shell for funeral expenses. And that was it. And so they decided to fight Shell for a buyout, trying to force Shell to buy or at least offer to purchase every property in the neighborhood. And they eventually got a buyout that they were satisfied with. But the, the, it's, it was kind of a bittersweet victory because this was a this was a black community in the south very historic one where most of these families owned their homes mm. which is extremely rare across the country but especially here in Louisiana for you know for black home ownership you know building wealth yeah. once these folks accepted a buyout you know they had to move places where they weren't necessarily able to purchase land or a home and they had to go to rent or, and they might have to go to renting and of course, mm-hmm. you know, a, a, a community that had been together for a, yeah, not separated. Since, and it's exactly since since before the emancipation of of enslaved people, this community had existed. And, and now it's mostly empty lots. There are a few people that decided to stay, but now it's mostly empty lots owned by Shell. So that's kind of what birthed the Bucket Brigade and started started us down the path to in addition to addressing the impacts of existing plants, stopping new plants from coming in. Yeah, I was reading, Louisiana has an incredible, an incredible number of, you know, chemical plants and facilities, I feel like in refineries and things like that, numbering at least in the hundreds, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, certainly hundreds, just between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, the area that we call Cancer Alley, there are hundreds at least 100 just within that stretch across the whole state. You know, it depends what you call a facility, right? It's kind of hard to get good numbers because, you know, you've got thousands of abandoned oil wells that emit things. You've got, you know, cement plants, you've got things that aren't necessarily petrochemical, but also have greater health impacts like grain elevators. It's a extremely industrialized area, Louisiana in general, but especially the coastline and the Mississippi River because of its because it's a transportation artery for the whole country. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like something like two thirds of the country can connect via waterway to the Mississippi River. You know, some like one third of all grain exports out of the country leave out of Louisiana. It's it's like like imagine imagine like two interstates worth of transportation capacity. You know, just going through your little rural community. Yeah, just. Absolutely. And yeah, and it's not just cars. And, you know, an interstate would be bad enough, but this is, you know, massive, incredibly toxic as well being produced as a byproduct constantly and being offloaded onto these people. It's, it's unconscionable. Right. The, 
So the LA Bucket Brigade and you guys have been, you have multiple major efforts. One of the things that I think that you're currently focusing on a lot is around trying to stop further liquid natural gas pipelines in development. Right. The, the pipelines and especially the, uh, the terminals where the pipelines end and gas is exported via boat, which is a really new phenomenon. I might be getting ahead of myself a little bit, but that's our, that's our big marquee campaign right now is fighting the natural gas build out. I, I tend to avoid the term natural gas because it's, mm -hmm. there's not much natural about it. Mm -hmm. I, I tend to, I try to say methane gas or fracked yep. gas as much as possible because that's mm -hmm. what it is. But yeah. yeah, that's, that's our, that's our folk. That's the focal point right now, but we've also been involved in a fight to stop the largest plastics plant that would that would be built in all of North America, which is right now kind of they are not able to move forward. And we're just waiting on decisions from the government and the courts basically on that one. So the big focus these days is these is these these natural gas export terminals. So yeah, I wanted to sort of talk about that. So as you were mentioning natural gas or Methane, you know, is produced by often produced by fracking, which is obviously an injection of some sort of fluid into the ground to literally crack it open and release the the methane, which is, as we know, in terms of a climate crisis type situation, has eighty to a hundred times the sort of heating capacity of normal CO two, you know, over sort of a twenty year time horizon. So, you know, making sure that these sort of facilities aren't created is extremely important. But there's also, I, I wonder, do you guys focus at all on some of the, you know, pollution elements as well that come about that? Because I'm pretty sure that a lot of the chemicals and things like that, they're actually used in the fracking material, stuff like that leaches into a lot of the groundwater and areas. And it's difficult to tell even what they've put into this. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, much like plastic, gas is one of those things that's that has major drawbacks and you know major health and environmental impacts at every step of the process from extraction to to delivery to consumer right the the starting point for most gas almost all but but not all of it but most gas is fracking these days yeah like you said you inject hydraulic fluids into the earth to break up rock formations and make it easier to actually access this gas and there's a lot we don't really know about these these chemicals that they use to to actually frack. And there's much a lot of reason to believe you don't want it anywhere near your drinking water aquifer. We have a few places where they're actively drilling for gas with fracking in Louisiana, namely in North Louisiana. But much of this gas is fracked as far away as Canada, Pennsylvania, Oklahoma, far west Texas, and is pipelined to Louisiana, which if you look at a map of pipelines in the United States, you see there's a big cluster. So many of them end right here in Louisiana, either on the Mississippi River or on the coastline. Hmm. Yeah. So I I've been wondering why, what is the situation in Louisiana that is it simply because of the location of the river or, or what is the reasoning behind the conditions that have made it so attractive for so many of these, you know, highly polluting industries to be located right, right in this area and to all come, come through here, especially as you're pointing out, a lot of this is stuff that's being 
brought in from out of state and then being exported once again out of state. And so none of this stuff is actually even really used or employing many people within the state. So do you have any idea of that, how this sort of came about, the conditions that, that brought this sort of thing? Right. You know, it's like a, it's a almost over 100 year long story, really, right? But to kind of break down the reasons, there's two broad categories. There are, like, there are the, the natural reasons, let's call them, and the political reasons. The natural reasons, like you mentioned, would include the fact that there's a major river going right through Louisiana. That's set in stone. You can't change that. That's that it, it makes sense that, you know, people exporting products of all kinds would want mm -hmm. to be close to this river, right? There's also the fact that a lot of this gas, a lot of gas is, and, and oil is just offshore of Louisiana's very long coast. And uh, then there are the political factors, which are, are pretty lax regulations, the, the friendliness, let's say, of our elected officials to, to lobbyists and executives in the oil and gas industry. And then there's, of course, you know, the combination of those two factors, which is the history. This has been going on for, like I said, over 100 years. There's a there's a town that everyone calls Norco, and they don't even think about it when it was previously named something else, and they renamed it after a refinery, right? So it's it's very much deeply embedded in in the political culture, one, but also in the culture of individual towns. You know, there are people who can say, like, oh, my dad and grandfather worked my same job in oil and gas. And it should be noted, Louisiana, you've got a great number of people without college degrees. And one of the most lucrative lines of work, if you don't have a college degree, especially in this part of the country, is working in oil and gas. And, uh, you know, you, you certainly can't begrudge a, a worker for, you know, trying to support their, you know, the, the difference between Louisiana and say a California, which used to have substantial oil and gas activity is that we haven't begun to transition away from oil and gas and, and, you know, retrain and replace those workers in, in the similar, similar fields. Yeah. So, so you mentioned, and I, and I think it's interesting around it because a large, as you're pointing out, a large portion of potentially, I think the, you know, the economy is sort of wrapped wrapped up in these industries as you've done as you've been doing your organizing and the volunteer work obviously the people who have been impacted and felt the brunt of you know the the poisoning and the neglect i imagine that that they generally sort of see the problem but you know as a larger population in the state what is the sort of reaction that you generally get from people are do these workers are they recognizing the problem and just saying well there's no other job do you get a lot of pushback from this sort of stuff what you know what is the what are the people of louisiana that you encounter you know generally feeling about this and and, and where would they like to go that is that's a really great question jacob and there are a few different parts to it so first i'll focus on the folks who live in closest proximity to these plants and feel the impacts most immediately everyone's impacted but some are more impacted than others, right? And the people who are more impacted tend to be folks who live in poorer, blacker, browner neighborhoods, which are often targeted for development simply because historically and to this day, these communities couldn't fight back. Um, mm -hmm. Like I said, this has been going on for over 100 years. So a lot of these facilities, including the ones in Diamond that I was mentioning earlier, were put up before black people even had the right to vote or mm -hmm. before they, their right to vote was respected in right. Louisiana. So they literally had no way 
to voice their opinion against these facilities in many cases. And most of these people don't have jobs in these plants. Oftentimes, recruiting is done for workers, is, is, uh, it targets workers elsewhere. You know, like these are, these tend to be, you know, poorer communities so that you tend to have fewer people who have, you know, the advanced degrees necessary for especially the management level jobs. You tend to have fewer people with, with even the high school diploma that may be necessary to do some of these jobs. And uh, it should also be noted, I alluded to this a bit, but you know, the companies prefer hiring people who don't live close to the plants because it's one thing dealing with a worker is breathing in, you know, some bad fumes while he's at work and then goes home, you know, however many miles away in the suburbs or whatever. It's another thing when that worker is getting angrier and angrier because they have to breathe in that same air at home, which has happened in the past in, 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 you know, this is a bit of a tangent, but mm -hmm. Decades ago, there were it was a lot more common to see workers and environmentalists team up because it was more common for those workers to live near the plants. Mm -hmm. That's less the case now, and a lot of it has to do with a lot of that has to do with breaking unions and reliance on contract labor. But anyway, that's a huge tangent. Yeah. Going how, back to your initial question, mm -hmm. excuse me. The 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 second part of that is how do people who currently work in these plants feel? Yeah. And one of the most interesting numbers I've ever seen in this work, polling numbers, is every year, more and more oil and gas workers say that they'd be open to working in green energy. And I believe a couple years ago, we passed 50% of oil mm. and gas workers who want to work in green energy. And the wild thing is, especially in the context of Louisiana, a lot of the skills are the same. The first offshore wind farm in the United States, in Rhode Island, off a place called Block Island. Many of the components to the to the platforms that those turbine turbines stand on were built in Louisiana and assembled by workers from Louisiana because it's the same it's it's the same structural design roughly as building an offshore oil rig. You require a lot of the same expertise and know-how for offshore drilling as you do for offshore wind farms. So there's a lot of overlap there and there's a, a you know, there's, there's, there's no need for, uh, for kind of this zero sum thinking that, you know, we'll have a bunch of people losing jobs if we want to go green. The, the opposite is true, actually. Over the mm -hmm. decades, since, since 2014, oil and gas jobs in Louisiana and nationwide have been declining precipitously, whereas green energy jobs are skyrocketing, right? So yeah, I hope that, I hope, I, I, I know that was a little long-winded, but I hope that- oh. Both yeah, it's great. And it's question. it's really encouraging, especially to get that number of of that a majority now, apparently of even people working within the industry who you would in many cases sort of expect to be the most resistant. Because as you were pointing out, it you know, it's their livelihoods to certain, you know, it's their livelihoods. Mm -hmm. And whether or not they're, you know, super thrilled about it, they still need to, you know, help support their families. But it's great to hear that that that's sort of percolating through. When what do you when you hear what are the concerns around that and and sort of what's standing in the way of that movement, is it just sort of the inertia of the companies and how they sort of own the ability to get investment in permitting in the area? Or is it that the workers, while they wouldn't mind in theory, have in practice certain types of hangups and concerns? Yeah, it's 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 a it's a little bit of all of the above. The the main obstacle I'd say is Inertia is a good way to put it, but there's a lot of effort 
on the part of the oil and gas industry to to keep things the way they are, right? You know, they're deep in the pockets of every elected official in this state almost in in both parties with a few notable exceptions. And, you know, money talks in this in this in this post citizens united united states right mm-hmm. it's it's very hard for even a well meaning legislator to to turn down a fat check from an oil and gas executive especially if they're not hearing their constituents complain about you know the plastics factory down the street and the pollution it causes mm-hmm. uh, there's you know there's a there's a legacy of there's a legacy of many things in this state. There's divisions between people on the basis of race and class and geography that factor into some people's political opinions on oil and gas. And, you know, the, the other thing is um, the, the, there, like I said earlier, there's a majority of oil and gas workers who have started to see the prospects in green energy, but here in Louisiana, they're not quite so tangible yet. So mm-hmm. I feel like more people will be open to it once they can actually see it and see how it works. But you know, there is a lot of hesitancy, a lot of skepticism. You know, Louise, I'm obviously Louisiana is a conservative state and there are a good number of people who take it for granted what they hear about, you know, about the Green New Deal or about renewable energy. Some of that, you know, good faith, some of it bad faith. You know, some people will change their minds, some people won't. But what I what I always try to impress on people is that is that right now, today is the time when people are deciding are this is this is when people these are the conditions where people change their minds and the the conditions where people make decisions, value value based decisions in terms of what kind of planet do I want to leave for my children? Um, mm-hmm. What kind of opportunities do I want for my children? You know, what what world do I want to live in? Mm-hmm. It's been easier to ignore those questions. But now with increasing storms, with these crazy weather patterns like we were talking about before yeah. we started recording, yeah, these have made the issue of climate change and the need for transition a lot more real for people. And mm-hmm. on all sides of the political spectrum, you're seeing that more so now than ever. You know, like just, I know, I know I'm kind of going on, but just a little personal story, you know, mm-hmm. growing up, I knew what Cancer Alley was. People on all sides of the aisle knew what Cancer Alley was and talked about Cancer Alley, you know, and and it, it was a real thing. But, you know, you go a little bit outside of Louisiana or you go way in North Louisiana, people wouldn't really know what it was. Mm-hmm. If you told me when I was a kid that the sitting U.S. president would talk about Cancer Alley, referring to the exact same thing I, I refer to, if mm-hmm. you told me that, you know, even five years ago, I would have told you you were crazy. But now I can pull up a video of Joe Biden talking about Cancer Alley. And that tells me something's moving. That tells me that, you know, there's positive progress. It's just that this is the critical moment, you know? Yeah, no, totally. I I want to, before, well, we can go back to something you said before, but I just want to stay on this sort of politics area and sort of some of the geopolitics of this. You know, how do you feel that the bar- the various sort of geopolitical developments in terms of the fact that, you know, part of the sort of Russia-Ukraine war and what's been going on, uh, you know, there and the ability for how strongly Europe is willing to sort of support and go in in terms of helping Ukraine and in terms of the United States, where, where they see geopolitically their own ability to get money by ousting Russia, who is a major export of, exporter of methane, and, you know, to sort of overtake them, you know, has, has that sort of changed 
at all any of any of your sort of efforts and the ability to to organize around the development of preventing some of this stuff? Yeah, great, great question. So two things have happened at roughly the same time. The United States oil and gas industry is looking for new markets, especially as, you know, we use less oil and gas. And they've decided on plastics as being one of those big new markets and LNG as the other one. LNG being liquid natural gas, which is you take regular gas from a pipeline, you know, the same gas that you might run your stove and you get it real cold and you basically freeze it. Well, you liquefy it and you put it on a boat. You can ship it overseas. The first time this ever happened in Louisiana, the first time we built an export terminal, it came online in 2016. So that's how new we're talking here. Before that, there was only like one gas export terminal. It was in Alaska. Hmm. So this is a very new technology. And all of a sudden, people are trying gas that you used to have to just pipeline around the country. You can put on a boat and send to whoever, whoever wants to buy it. Shortly after we gained that capability, you know, a little thing happened in Ukraine, which led to most of the world uh, halting trade with Russia. Now, Europe, you know, they have a they have much colder winters than we do here in Louisiana. They have a high need for gas to, you know, to generate power to heat their homes, and they used to get it via pipeline from Russia. Now, because of the war, most of Europe, all of Europe, really is no longer buying gas from Russia. And what do you know? The American oil and gas industry is right there to, to fulfill that demand. Now, I've actually been lucky enough to talk to some people in Europe on the import side of things, and they're quite shocked to learn what goes into sending this gas over there. But what they mostly are focused on is the fact that rather than doubling down on using gas, now is a perfect opportunity to hasten the transition to renewables, which, Absolutely. which, which even some of the highest consumers of gas like Germany have have done they've they've they plan to hasten their timetables for transition by a couple decades mm -hmm. so while there is you know some temporary like temporary elevated demand oil and gas will try to convince you that that means that you know the the boom times for them will last forever and this is the future of the economy when in reality you know they maybe have like 30 years where mm -hmm. selling gas overseas is going to be profitable. And 30 years, you know, that's that's not a lot of time, but it's enough time to really eat the ecosystem here in Louisiana and communities here in Louisiana by building these terminals. And, you know, once they pack up and leave because it's not profitable anymore, it's our mess to clean up. And when I say our mess, I mean usually the state government because that's often what happens. But uh, but yeah, that's that's a bit of the geopolitical considerations. You can you can go it, it, it's it's really fascinating to go into all the different facets of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it is, have you found that the, you know, cause you were mentioning sort of that this is a 30 year horizon that maybe they'll be able to sell profitably for. And I think that that's important to note that when you're building a lot of this infrastructure, you need at minimum 20 to 30 years of sales before you could even break even on the initial investment. So any new investments for things that that people are trying to do new developments, they're saying that they, in order to make that make sense from a financial perspective, they're saying that they plan on continuing to, you know, either liquid natural gas or oil or tar sales, whatever, you know, wherever it is, you know, from the environment for 20 to 30 years at least. And, you know, 
that's probably not economically you know, possible, but it's certainly not environmentally compatible with you know, any sort of condition that, you know, just globally, let alone what the acute damage that's going to do to Louisiana. Right. Like, like I've been saying over and over, now is the pivotal, pivotal excuse me, time. And while 30 years in the grand scheme of all of time might not seem like that much, we know, according to the UN, to the, the IPCC, the experts, that to uh, keep under that target of 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, that we can't build any new fossil fuel infrastructure. Now, mm-hmm. this, the, the, the people in on the ground floor, the earliest people to this LNG craze are probably going to make a ton of money. You know, mm-hmm. the Joe Schmo investor, you know, getting in late on the game. Not necessarily. It's a it's a big gamble for not a lot of payoff. And in fact, we already know would have a huge cost. And there's a lot of greenwashing involved, including in the name natural gas. You know, there's a lot of talk about how, oh, we're replacing coal with this. But when it comes down to it, you know, why are we putting in this intermediate step between fossil fuels and, you know, coal, oil and renewables? When we know that even this is too much. And we know that, like you mentioned earlier, that the impact of even a small methane leak is so much more than than the same amount of carbon dioxide. Yeah, 100%. It's they often say, you know, oh, it's a bridge. It's a bridge fuel. And, you know, it's not a bridge. It's a gangplank. (laughs) Yeah, well said. Yeah, I wanted to go back a little bit because you were talking about the specific environmental degradation that all of this and the sort of we talked a little bit about the sort of an acute incident with that when there was a benzene spill and the cause of the explosion you had discussed an example of a very sort of acute the explosion where you'd had the benzene spill and the and the, and the, the tragedy with the with the explosion when the and the kid was trying to mow the lawn. But obviously with a name like Cancer Alley, you know, a lot of these effects and a lot of what's happening is sort of slower and, you know, not quite as acute as a giant explosion. Can you talk a little bit about some of the stories and about what what actually the people on the ground there that are, you know, are suffering? Because as you pointed out, hiring people from away there that aren't constantly feeling these effects really sort of undermines the ability to some extent to, to at least historically to bring attention to this and to organize, you know, around it. And so what, what are some of the health effects that people are facing from this? Yeah, it's a laundry list. We call it cancer alley, but some people have, have they, they like, in, there's a coalition called CADA, Coalition Against Death Alley, because it really is a wide ranging, like kids are born with asthma more often. Then before, you know, respiratory illnesses of all kinds are way more common. Immune systems tend to be suppressed. There were many, many studies coming out that showed a significant link between exposure to air pollution and severity of COVID symptoms, for instance. Mm. And I'll I'll tell you like a brief story I heard from Sharon Levine of Rye St. James, one of our partner organizations who's based in the heart of Cancer Alley, right next to where the, the the plan is to build Formosa Plastics, put a major wrench in the works there for now and hopefully permanently, but I digress. But she would tell me how she watched fruit trees that slowly die over the years. You know, it got to the point in certain parts of, of her community, people can't grow gardens very reliably. Mm-hmm. And, and think about that. You're right on the banks of the Mississippi. This is 
prime agricultural land. To this day, to this day, there's still tons and tons of sugar cane. There's a reason why plantations were sited there on the river for transportation and for fertile farmland. And now people can't grow gardens in their yards. The, The fruit trees that they picked you know, Satsuma's citrus fruits from with their grandparents are dead. It's, it's, you know, I don't want to sound hyperbolic, but it is almost apocalyptic in scale. Your community Mm -hmm. is unrecognizable and in literal ways less alive. It's, it's, it's hard to see with your own eyes, but I believe essential to see with your own eyes because you really can't understand it until you see it. That that's not to say that there aren't still vibrant communities in the area, but it's certainly in spite of decades and decades and decades of environmental racism and all other forms of racism and, you know, wide wealth disparity and just a lack of care for, for the impact of all this industrial activity. Sorry. Hey, Jack, it's Barry. When you were describing the gardening and the trees, it sounds like the canary in the coal mine that yeah. that should be such an alarming situation for people when you when when the foliage and the trees are dying. Right, right. Yeah, it, it it is extremely alarming. Part of the reason why it's been so easy for industry and their friends and in, in elected politics to kind of sweep it under the rug is because for many, many decades, these communities were completely invisible to the political process, made so intentionally. And if these people in industry and their associates had their way, these communities would remain invisible. Luckily, we're in a position now where people are paying attention. Like I said, it's really crazy to see the president talk about communities that I've been to, that I've known my whole life, people that I've met over the years. It's it's. For the for the first time, we're starting to see the light shine on this on this humanitarian crisis. Is what it really is. Yeah. But for so many decades, it was it was completely invisible to the to the world at large. Yeah. Can you you've mentioned a couple times, but can you talk about when President Biden, you know, and when you see figures in power, at least rhetorically, recognize what's going on has that had an impact materially in the ability you know is it a material impact emotionally or is it you know does it help with organizing what sort of impact does it have when when officials obviously you'd like them to do more actually pass legislation do things like that but taking that first step does that have material advantages as you're making your arguments and and going about doing your organizing yeah, it's a that's a really great question and really well put because yeah, there we would we would like a lot more. I've been greatly disappointed in many ways already by the Biden administration, but also have been impressed in some other sections. When it comes to seeing the president say the words cancer alley, you know, it's it's cliche, but the first step to solving a problem is admitting that there is one. Mm-hmm. And I do think it's extremely important to to see the people in power name the problem. I know that it's invigorated, you know, the the folks who have been dealing with this for their whole lives, you know, elderly people, you know, like people who have, who you, you would not blame them for giving up, you know, but mm-hmm. things like that do 
invigorate people. It, 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 it makes people feel as though someone's watching, as though their efforts can amount to something. Now you get into, now you have to get into the actually having material impact, seeing real changes. And when it comes to the Biden administration, we've seen things that, again, I wouldn't have believed five years ago, like the director of the EPA physically coming to these communities and seeing them with his own eyes. That's a big deal. That never happened. There is an EPA investigation, a Title VI civil rights investigation into the state environmental authority, the Department of Environmental Quality, and the State Department of Health for racist practices in not evaluating the cumulative impact of these plants on nearby minority communities. So a lot is still up in the air when it comes to the Biden administration. It's a little too early to tell. We're waiting to see, you know, what tangible effects their actions will have. But I'll say we've seen a lot more certainly than the previous administration. And from 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 what I understand, I'm I'm only 25, and so I haven't been around in this work for very long in the grand scheme of things. But when I talk to my colleagues about what it was like working with the Obama administration, it seems like there the Biden administration is more willing to put their money where their mouth is, so to mm-hmm. speak. We're still waiting though on real, solid, material changes, solutions. There's still a lot we want from the Biden administration. For instance, the the executive branch has a huge amount of power over approving these LNG terminals. The 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 president himself as commander in chief of the armed forces can tell the army corps of engineers that Formosa plastics should not be built in a vulnerable coastal area. There are things that the president could do with a stroke of the pen, you know? Right. There's uh, going back to the train derailment, it's elected officials and you know and you know other administration officials love to say you know oh i would i would do everything you're asking for if only i could if only it weren't for congress but there really are some things that can and should be done with the stroke of a pen with decisive immediate action from the people we put in power to serve us right yeah absolutely i so i guess Going from there is, you know, that there's some positive developments. There's certainly super far to go in many of this. In some areas, it's even going backwards. But where do Mm -hmm. you see, you know, because I often think that if you just sort of list out the the problems and the issues, you you end up, people feel disempowered. They, They end up shutting down over how horrible everything is. So where do you see... In your efforts and in other efforts, where do you see the bright spots here that, that people can sort of get plugged into and help grow to, you know, to push on and make the sort of maximum effort so that in this critical moment, as you've said times, where people are making these decisions, that we can tilt them, you know, we can grow the bright spots and tilt them towards making the right choices. Yeah, yeah, there definitely are bright spots. I'll say when it comes to Louisiana specifically with things like the president talking about Cancer Alley more national organizations with, you know, clout resources are paying attention and genuinely coming here and asking us, how can we support your efforts effectively? That is something that was never the case. Louisiana, when it comes to, you know, what we call the big green, you know, I I won't name specific organizations, but I'm sure you can imagine the, the, the large national organizations that have a lot of money, a lot of donors, 
and get involved very frequently with the big flashy efforts. Doing great work, don't get me wrong, but typically until recently, those organizations have not wanted so much to get involved in pla- get involved in places like Louisiana because it is extremely difficult terrain. It's a conservative mm-hmm. state. You're you're a big time underdog, but now people see one how important it is, and two, the underdog can win. You know, mm-hmm. like uh, we've had some substantial victories in the last couple of years in the form of stopping planned facilities that were supposed to be done deals. Some are on the ropes. Some are completely dead in the water. And what, just, just to focus on that, what specifically did you find was a good strategy? I found it interesting as you were mentioned, you know, mentioning at the beginning that you sort of as a group try to really meet people where they are and go after, you know, whatever specific issue or in whatever way that they, that they want and, and mix the, you know, combine them with uh, experts in the area. What, what have been the strategies that have led to some of these victories? It's all been about, and, and it sounds like a cliche, but I'm going to explain because it's, it's really true, but it's all about bottom-up community-oriented grassroots organizing. It's about neighbors talking to neighbors. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it, that, is, that is the foundation of every successful campaign is getting together with people who are dealing with the same problems as you are. And this applies to environmental work. It applies to all, all kinds of work. If you're trying to organize your workplace, it's, it's the same basic principle. You identify who, who has you know, a sim- similar, similar interests and similar concerns and goals as you. You get together, you talk, you organize, and you pursue those goals as a collective. There are more specific strategies, like I was saying earlier. Maybe it makes sense to go the legal route. Maybe it makes more sense to march to City Hall. You have to slowly but surely build up and scale up based on those conversations you have with your neighbors. Who do we know? What do we already have going for us? What resources do we have access to? What do we need? You know, actually sitting down and describing as specifically as you can what the problem is and what your preferred solution is. You know, it sounds simple, but it to actually achieve your goal, you have to sit down and do it and you have to do it with other people. So no matter where you are, the climate change, you know, environmental degradation seems like a big, massive problem that any one individual couldn't consume, you know, one bite at a time, right? But in every community, there is some type of project or problem or solution that relates to this broader problem of stopping climate change. And there's a way for you to get involved in your neighborhood or your town or your state. And I promise you, even if it doesn't seem like it when you're starting out, there is someone else in proximity to you who wants to try to do the same thing and is waiting for or looking for their people, so to speak. You know, Mm -hmm. the people who they can work with to achieve that. So I I hope that doesn't sound too platitudinous or whatever, but the key really is talking to your neighbors. Mm -hmm. That's how any of these victories start. It starts with the neighbors talking to each other. Yeah, fantastic. And I just, I love the, you know, both the bottom up and actually talking and building solidarity and connection with people and finding that common struggle, you know, and the, 
and the common set of problems that we have. Because you know, as you as you know from from DSOT, there are so many, and trying to find ways to you know bind people together and to bring people into that shared common struggle is for all of the for all of the different topics uh, you know and issues that we're facing is is going to be key towards towards actually getting a government that represents us. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I just want to thank you, Jack, so much. This has been a fantastic conversation. I am a huge admirer of all the work that the LA Bucket Brigade does. I can't wait to at some point get down to take a bike ride. And it'll be you guys do the the bike rides down by the Superfund sites, I believe. So so we've actually I would say they're they're places that should be super fun sites, but aren't yet. Mm. We'd be taking you along the Mississippi River levee, so right on the river, alongside a lot of these active facilities, some of the ones that I've been talking about, going right through the heart of Cancer Alley in Norco. Be able to see you'll be able to see the community of Diamond as as it currently exists and actually see the the now empty streets between those two shell facilities. And mm. see the river and the giant tanker boats on there. It's it's really an experience. Like I said earlier, you can only really believe it when you see it with your own eyes. And it's very important. And I really look forward to y'all coming to see us. Yeah, we're looking forward to it as well. We'll follow up and arrange a date. But thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it, Jack, all the work that you do. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Yeah, thanks, y'all. And thanks for everything y'all are doing with Don't Shop on Tuesdays. I'm really, really impressed with what y'all are up to, and I'm glad that y'all are scaling up. Oh, thank you so much. Have a great day. You too, y'all. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at don'tshoponTuesday at gmail.com. You can find out more about the movement at don'tshoponTuesday.com. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash don'tshoponTuesday. And you can follow our Instagram at don't shop on Tuesday.